So I'm the ministerial intern here, which means sometimes I get told what to preach about, which is fine. (laughs) And today, I'm supposed to talk about our birthday, our eighth birthday as a worshiping community here together. But as I sat around this week and thought about what I could share with you all, it was pretty difficult for me to come up with anything to talk about except this right behind me. This is the common application logo. I see this at least 30 times a day. Many of you have seen this as well, if you have college age or thereabouts children. The Common Application is an online application that a couple hundred colleges and universities use to collect information from high school seniors who are applying for admission. I am your ministerial intern, but that role here is only half-time, part-time. And when I'm not here, as many of you know, I work for the admissions office at Swarthmore College, a small liberal arts school just outside of the city, which is where I sent in a Common Application when I was 17 years old and was successfully admitted, thankfully. Now, before you take out your notebooks and pencils, parents, I'm not giving away any secrets today. But this is a big part of my life right now. From late December through March, I am reading about 30 different applications a day from kids who come from all over the country and all over the world. And I have a love-hate relationship especially with this part of the year, with this part of my job, with reading season, as we call it. The love part is actually really similar to the same thing that drew me towards ministry. I love hearing people's stories. I love it. I feel like it's a sacred trust and privilege to be able to hear where someone's come from, what motivates them, what drives them, what kinds of experiences that they've had in their life. And I get to read about 30 stories a day. And sometimes that feels actually kind of amazing. A lot of kids write things in their college application essays that they may have never articulated before, even to themselves. For a lot of kids, it's the first time they're doing something really on their own without their parents, sometimes. Sometimes they'll write things that they've actually never told anyone, and they'll let me know that. And that is a sacred trust. Almost all of them lay out their hopes, sometimes tender, heartfelt hopes and dreams for their lives. And so I really do love that part. I have been known to waste, not waste, (laughs) my boss might think waste, but waste the time that I should have spent reading three applications on one really good story in a college application essay. And so I'm not going to share quotes, because that would get me fired, but I am going to share with you a little bit distillations of things that I've read dozens and dozens of times in the words of these 17-year-olds from all over the world. I want to encourage you to let them sink in a little bit. You might hear yourself in some of these stories. I want to be a doctor so that I can help like the doctors helped my mom when she was dying of cancer. I want to be an artist because I've always been different and creative, and I want to make art so that other people know that that's okay. 
I want to be a college graduate. I want to fulfill my parents' dreams for me of being the first person in our family to finish college. I want to work with children with special needs because I saw how hard it was for my little brother to go through a standard educational system without the extra support that he needed. I want to go into finance. I want to work on Wall Street. I want to be as financially secure as possible so that I can support my family and not have to struggle the way I had to watch my parents or my grandparents struggle. I want to be an immigration lawyer. I want to make sure that people don't have to go through what my neighbor and her family had to go through to come to this country. I want to be a teacher so that I can teach people to love and believe in themselves like Mrs. Hernandez or Mr. O'Brien or Ms. Smith or Ms. Washington or Mr. Johnson did for me. These are beautiful stories. And getting to read them over and over again really gives me hope. But there's something else that I've realized as I read these stories over and over again. It's that as much as they are filled with hope and promise for the future, they are all also rooted in some kind of pain. Every one of these essays contains some kind of original crack, breaking open, a death, an exclusion, an experience of lack or poverty, a fear, some moment that a child has realized maybe for the first time in their life that not everything is right, and they still carry that with them. There's pain in the world for everyone they love and for themselves, and they're reflecting on the fact that they've had to experience that. All of these great stories of hope and altruism and aspirational accomplishment also contain that, some kind of original hurt. We all, I think, have a moment like that. I know I do, that I can reflect on as well. There's a phrase in a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite quotes from the Christian scriptures for a pretty shallow reason, mostly because it sounds really nice and cozy, especially in the wintertime. And I do love it. It's this quote right here. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> like a cozy sweater. Intentionally crafted, made, formed. How many parents have dreams and hopes for their children before they're ever born? That's not a rhetorical question. How many parents? <laughs> Thank you. Keep your hands up, please. How many adults with children in their lives have the same hopes and dreams? A niece, a nephew, a goddaughter, a godson, a student? Okay, that's pretty much everyone. For those of you listening at home, you can put your hands down now. There is something true about the warm fuzziness 
of that quote. We were all dreamed about before we were here, each of us. Our lives were knit together in many ways, maybe not fully knit into a big long scarf, but cast on the needle, at least, before we ever took a single breath of air. And even if it wasn't your parents, which for some of us it wasn't, there was someone who knew that you were coming, and they really wanted the best for you. They hoped that you would live a life of blessing and ease. And even with all that, almost as soon as we exist, we are hurt. This psalm, if you're familiar with it, gets used for a lot of purposes. Psalm 139 gets used to advance a lot of different kinds of agendas. Some people use it as an anti-abortion text. Some people use it to give comfort to folks who might have felt that they were a mistake, to let them know that no pregnancy can be a mistake, no life can be a mistake. Some people use it to support a broader idea that there is a whole scarf in mind, that God has a complete plan for each and every life, all set out and ready to go. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of these interpretations. And so when I pulled it out this week, I read the full psalm and some commentaries and some scholars and what they'd written about it. And I learned that the context around this warm, fuzzy quote is not pleasant. It's actually a psalm about persecution. The psalmist is writing about dealing with their enemies, with the unfair things in the world. The psalmist is writing about trying to overcome their own fear. Learning to trust under difficult or painful or unfair circumstances that they are still loved, knit together fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a psalm about trusting our worth. Personally, I've never gotten a lot of comfort out of the idea that there's an omnipotent controller with a complete plan for my life. Because I know that my life is likely to involve things that hurt. Our lives might include rejection from college, getting sick, being laid off, the dissolution of a marriage, not having enough money to support ourselves, being a victim of violence, losing someone close and precious to us, But I do find comfort in the idea that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not to be free from pain forever, but to be loved when I hurt. To have no possible way to separate from that love, even in the depths of something unfair or difficult. That seems like a blessing that I can trust. So I mentioned that I have a love-hate relationship with this job. Not this job, the other job. (laughs) Love-love for this job. The hate part could probably be a whole other message series that I don't want to bore you with. I'll give you a snippet. As an extrovert, in case you haven't noticed, I hate 
sitting in front of a computer for eight to ten hours a day with no human face-to-face interaction, just reading files. It's like my own personal hell sometimes. I hate that as much as the institution I work for is actually a part of me and helps shape me, and therefore I do love it, the values that it tells me to judge these kids by are not always exactly the same as the values that I hold. And I hate that a lot of kids are going to get decision letters in the mail in two months, and they're going to feel like I and my coworkers just picked up their dreams and dragged them through the mud and dropped them. The other thing I hate is the same thing I love. Sometimes I hate these stories. Sometimes I hate knowing how normal it is to hurt in our world. Because every 17-year-old does know some kind of pain, and most of them have known it for many years. And even the ones who can't articulate their pain actually articulate the pain of not being able to articulate it. They talk about their service trip, their mission trip. They talk about seeing pain in the world and the pain of disconnection. It's hard to hear all of these stories and not know what's going to happen to any of these lives. As much as it hurts to experience our own pain, it also hurts to see or even just to imagine all those knit-together dreams for all those children and how they break. There's a word that we use a lot to describe kids. Innocence. It can be a loaded word, innocence. The image we have of innocence is something like this, right here. Aw, right? (laughs) A little baby with wings. A perfect angel. Safe, carefree, no pain touching them. I looked up the word this week and the etymology behind it, where the word came from. It couldn't have been more perfect. (laughs) The word comes from Latin innocence, and it's an antonym, it's an opposite word for the Latin word nocere, which doesn't mean freedom from pain. Nocere means to harm. Innocence is the opposite of harming. Sounds like something we've heard in this message series, right? Healing and hurting work together. It's harming that's the opposite. Innocence doesn't mean that we're free from hurt. Innocence means not harming. That's the innocence we can return to, that we all still carry inside of ourselves. That's our original blessing. That's our original impulse. It's to not harm. It's specifically to do the opposite of harming, Actually, it's to heal, which I think is why I keep reading about these 17-year-olds who, when they're asked for the first time sometimes to reflect on their purpose and goals in life, they're talking about that first deep hurt and how all they want to do still to this day 
is heal. Heal for themselves and heal for others. That's the natural impulse that we all carry, is to knit our hurt together with a blessing. The natural arising of compassion, the light inside of all of us. It's that innocence that we can always go back to and trust. In his book, Falling Upward, Father Richard Rohr talks about the first stage of life, which is where we're really just trying to get our bearings. We're trying to figure out this world that we're in. We're trying to create a container for our identity with safety and boundaries and security. We need that. But he talks about how as we move past that first stage, there's a shift that happens. We start to allow that container to fill, he says, with the content of our deepest and fullest selves. Father Rohr says that God, in his language, has to undo our illusions secretly, as it were, when we are not watching and not in perfect control. That is perhaps why the best word for God is actually mystery, he says. We move forward in ways that we do not even understand and through the quiet workings of time and grace. And when we get there, we are never sure how it happened. And God doesn't seem to care who gets the credit. As long as our growth continues. He quotes the 4th century saint Gregory of Nyssa, who says, Sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. Sin happens when we refuse to keep growing. But blessing and healing can happen when we grow. Growth hurts a little. Things usually grow in dirt. I don't like these facts, but they tend to be true. Things grow in the dirt, but in order to grow, we have to trust that we're good seeds. That each of us, as the saying goes, is a good egg. So finally, we come to the birthday. (laughs) The eighth birthday of Wellsprings. I met you all when you were six. I like to picture Wellsprings as a six-year-old. I feel like Wellsprings as a six-year-old would look something like this guy, the wise kid from the Campbell's Soup commercials. (laughs) Doesn't that feel right? Feels about right. Six is a big year, right? Six is often when kids start first grade. They often are learning to read. They might be spending a full day in school for the first time. There is a shift at age six, not quite the one Father Rohr is talking about, but a transition from a state of that sponge-like exploration where a child is paying attention to absolutely everything and soaking it all in to sometimes confronting the real pressures 
of systems in the world. A different kind of growth can start at age six. The world of going to school and getting grades, maybe being tracked, maybe being asked to sit still in a chair and face forward and be quiet. I've watched Wellsprings grow from ages six to eight, this small time in your development. And we have grown in numbers, but also in other ways. We've had to begin to navigate some questions as we grow about what we will truly set our hearts upon as a community. How will we practice our innocence? How will we remember our origins? How will we respond to that natural arising of compassion for the world that we see around us? And how will we trust our seeds as things change within us and around us? Mainline Unitarian Church was one of our parents. They were one of the first grown-ups, grown-up organizations to support Wellsprings. And today, Reverend Ken, our lead minister, and Kathy Burke Howe, one of the leaders of our addictions and recovery team, are at Mainline Unitarian Church, sharing with them what we've learned. Sharing with them what we've learned about our addictions and recovery ministry team and the impact that it's had on our congregation and our community. Have any of you ever had a conversation with one of your parents where something comes up and you're able to share something that you've learned about life with them? And they get this kind of half-suspicious, half-misty look in their eyes. like Almost like in their minds, they're looking at you and thinking, is my child really saying this? Are they really going to be okay? Is it possible I didn't screw this up that badly? Maybe it wasn't a conversation with your parent. Maybe what's closest to your heart is a conversation you've had with a child you know where you got that kind of misty look in your eyes. We're a good egg, Wellsprings. We were loved before we were born. So on our birthday Sunday, let's trust in the blessing of our origins and let's see what our growth has in store. Happy birthday. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, holy presence and spirit, spirit of life that has been with us from the beginning, we offer gratitude this morning for the good seeds that we are. We pray for the courage to trust when the world makes it hard sometimes. We pray for that courage to trust the goodness that we carry, that it's here for all of us. To remember the original blessings and the innocence that we knew when we were just getting started. 
for all of these prayers and for the prayers that each one of us carries silently on their hearts this morning. We say amen.